Tim Doran, Vice President for Monetary Studies at the Cato Institute. Welcome to Cato's 39th Annual Monetary Conference. With the Federal Reserve being asked to expand its mandate beyond price stability and maximum employment to include climate change, equity issues, and fiscal QE, it's an appropriate time to consider populism and the future of the Fed. One could argue that those who want the Fed to allocate credit, help fund a Green New Deal, engage in helicopter drops and so on are well-intentioned. However, the real issue is whether such actions are consistent with long-run price stability and the rule of law. Several questions thus come to mind. First, what are the limits to what the Fed can do and what it should do in a free society? Second, where do we draw the line between fiscal and monetary policy? Third, do we want an activist central bank with wide discretion or a limited central bank guided by a monetary rule? Fourth, what are the risks populism poses for the conduct of monetary policy, Fed independence, and central bank credibility? Finally, can the Fed control inflation if populism and fiscal QE become prevalent? Our distinguished speakers today will address these and related issues. Before getting started, I'd like to thank the George Edward Durrell Foundation and the Harold J. Bowen Jr. and Duval Bowen Family Foundation for supporting today's event. I'd also like to thank Cato's excellent staff for helping with the conference, especially Nick Anthony, manager of our Center for Monetary and Fiscal Alternatives and Kiana Graham, our conference manager. For those tweeting, please use hashtag CatoMonCon. Now it's my pleasure to introduce our keynote speaker, Raghu Ram Rajan. Raghu is the Catherine Duzak Miller Distinguished Service Professor of Finance at the University of Chicago Booth School of Business. He served as governor of the Reserve Bank of India and chief economist and director of research at the IMF. In 2003, the American Finance Association awarded Rajan the Fisher Black Prize for the best finance researcher under the age of 40. He was named Central Banker Governor of the Year by Euro Money and the FT Group's Banker Magazine. Rajan is the author of several books, including Fault Lines, How Hidden Fractures Still Threaten the World Economy, which was named the 2010 FT Goldman Sachs Business Book of the Year. He holds a PhD from MIT's Sloan School of Management. It's an honor to have him with us today. Let's welcome uh, Raghu. Thanks uh, very much, Jim, for inviting me to this conference on populism and the future of the Fed. Um, I titled this talk, uh, The Road to Dominance, after a much more famous speech by a Chicago professor. Um, let me... Uh, um, start first by saying that we are indeed living through unprecedented times, uh, certainly uh, times that none of us has experienced. Uh, the pandemic and the ever-morphing virus, as well as the fight against it, including uh, now the um, you know, focus on the distribution of vaccines and uh, increasingly a variety of treatments, uh, we've seen extraordinary fiscal and monetary responses, especially in industrial countries, and uh, of course, uh, you know, the, this uh, uh, comes at a time where we have extraordinary financial and non-financial innovation uh, in, uh, in many parts of the world. But it's also accompanied by a lot of leveraging, uh, again, both on the financial and non-financial side, and uh, a level of financial asset prices that uh, now seems frothy in many, many uh, parts of, of the world. Um, this is at a time where there's also a lot of differentiation across countries as well as within countries. And of course, as Jim pointed out, we now have the prospect for uh, the first time in a long time of, uh, of high inflation and rising interest rates. Now, given all this, uh, it is uh, sort of important to note that our fundamental hope on monetary outcomes is that after transitory period of inflation, uh, hopefully short-lived, this time will not be different. In other words, we will go back to the benign post-global financial crisis pre-pandemic world. Given the changes that have occurred, this seems uh, somewhat optimistic. 
But let's start with the basic question, why are we in the current situation? Uh, clearly, the pandemic has changed much and in unexpected ways, and I'll come to that. But much had changed before. Uh, certainly, post-global financial crisis, we were in a period of what the IMF terms lowflation. Uh, central banks were not achieving their inflation target. The US PC inflation averaged about 1.4% from 2012 to 2020, clearly way below the 2% target. Now, under the assumption that inflation is always a monetary phenomenon, it was up to the central bank to fix it. And, and certainly from the political side, pressure on the central bank mounted in this time of low growth. If you are not meeting your target and falling below it, there must be some stimulus that you're not delivering, so go to it. Uh, pressure also came from the foreign exchange market as other central banks found new innovative ways of expanding accommodation. I know, for, for instance, the ECB was under tremendous pressure to respond to what was happening in Japan and the United States. Uh, central bankers did not reject uh, the, these new responsibilities. And indeed, one can discern a kind of smugness in their lament that fiscal policy and structural reforms were not uh, in, at work and monetary policy was the only game in town. But of course, while central banks knew how to bring down inflation, Paul Volcker had written the playbook for that, there's no obvious playbook for reflating an economy, especially when nominal rates were already at zero. So what did central banks do? Uh, they embarked on unconventional monetary policy. Um, interventions took different forms, um, many resembling policies that emerging markets abandoned decades ago as they sought to bring monetary discipline to their economies. Uh, for sure, one policy that seemed to work was repairing markets. Uh, QE1 uh, did a lot to put the mortgage-backed securities market back on track in the United States. Draghi, with his uh, uh, OMT, uh, Ordinary Monetary uh, Transactions, I think that's what it stands for, um, and his famous statement, within our mandate, the ECB is ready to do whatever it takes to preserve the euro, and believe me, it will be enough. That uh, certainly uh, brought the peripheral um, sovereign debt markets in, uh, in Europe uh, back uh, to, uh, you know, to the levels they were uh, before they had blown out. And um, that was, uh, uh, those were examples of repairing markets. But, but QE took many other forms. Uh, I, I should say unconventional monetary policy took other forms, such as quantitative easing, large-scale asset purchases through, as, uh, through uh, especially of government debt, as well as increasingly directed credit programs. This was one set of things the central banks did. The other, which we are... Uh, you know, seeing today, of course, at work is uh, they change their frameworks. Uh, to some extent, this reflected um, Paul Krugman's uh, advice, which was, um, you know, central banks had to be uh, rationally irresponsible, not react at the first sign of inflation, in a, in a sense, be more relaxed about inflation, so that when future inflation uh, was, uh, was uh, brought forward, uh, into expectations today, there would be more of a possibility of raising inflation today. So um, essentially, uh, these frameworks um, uh, committed to the public markets that uh, the uh, central banks would not be trigger happy. They would no longer be preemptive in heading off inflation. Uh, remember the Fred, uh, Fed mantra in the past was, if you see inflation in the eyeballs, it's too late. Instead, uh, the central banks would be more measured and reactive. And furthermore, by focusing on the average inflation over a undefined period, uh, they could allow higher inflation for a while and uh, still not be criticized for falling behind the curve. Um, the Fed, in its new mandate, uh, also stressed that uh, the employment goal is broad-based and inclusive, affecting all parts of the labor market and not just certain segments. And since minorities, unfortunately, are the last to be hired, this meant that the Fed would potentially tolerate a tighter labor market than in the past. 
and and it's uh, finally its employment mandate became more asymmetric rather than minimize deviations from maximum employment it worried uh, about shortfalls leaving it to the inflation mandate to react to an overly tight labor market so uh, you know changes in mandate and changes in the action sphere uh, especially through unconventional monetary policy these were the ways central banks not just the fed uh, tried to react to the spirit of low inflation what consequences did these actions have i mean certainly we can see that asset prices rose and leverage built up though of course you can't tie it specifically to uh, specific um, monetary actions they they were prompted uh, by easy monetary conditions but we also have some evidence for the micro effects of unconven- unconventional monetary policy certainly the efforts to repair specific markets through explicit or implicit guarantees seem to work and rising asset prices in those markets recapitalized banks and drove more lending this was true in europe it was true in the united states and there are detailed micro studies that show this um, directed lending also expanded the flow of credit to targeted segments though not always to the larger benefit as emerging markets uh, discovered over time at the macro level uh, krishnamurthy and vising jorgensen found that qe seemed to work to signal monetary policy would remain low for long so long as we are buying assets we're not going to raise rates and that seems true even today uh, but the broader macro impacts on real activity are harder to discern and there is variety across the organizations that are doing this kind of research an interesting paper by fabo um, uh, pastor kemp and others um, examines 54 studies on the effects of qe on output and inflation in the us the uk and the euro area while these papers uh, when they're written by central bankers typically report a statistically significant qe effect on output only half the academic papers do so there is uh, mixed evidence in this regard interestingly the most hawkish uh, central bank the bundesbank uh, papers from there find even less of an effect of qe on output then the academic papers do truly the value of qe seems to be in the eye of the beholder and where they stand however even as all this was thrown at the low inflation problem it didn't seem to have uh, the desired effect but most importantly the environment started changing from the low inflation environment to a different environment altogether and in some ways this changed into an environment that emerging markets have been very familiar with in the past the first big change was the rise of populist nationalism and protectionism certainly evidenced by the china us trade war but uh, occurring in many other ways also in this uh, environment uh, outsourcing uh, certainly seems far less politically feasible for firms and we talked about a global labor market where wages in uh, in the united states for example were held down because there was a threat of moving business to either china or mexico or other places uh, i'm not opining on whether this is a good thing but it did keep down potentially wage growth with the rise of protectionism with the difficulty of moving uh, your your uh, production elsewhere the global labor market has become much more local which tends to help in in raising wages uh, there are reasons why it might be a good thing for other reasons but certainly from an inflationary perspective uh, it made it harder uh, to control inflation but the the perhaps the most important change was the pandemic shock uh, the fed intervened across the board as financial markets seized up and while much of the dislocation in these financial markets was attributed to the pandemic the necessity for intervention was not unrelated to the leveraging and the asset price inflation that had been unleashed before that by uh, easy money fiscal policy also changed and this is, has been the biggest change um post global financial crisis fiscal policy was significantly constrained post pandemic it seemed like the floodgates were opened across the industrial world the political consensus perhaps the only political consensus that could be reached was to spend in a huge untargeted way uh, untargeted in order to get uh, consensus from both sides of the aisle and uh, 
essentially what we had was a downturn with very little economic pain. Uh, disposable income uh, at the households are up, bankruptcies were down, even bank loan loss provisions were unused. Uh, there, is, there are a number of studies now showing that uh, PPP money went in through the front door of small and medium-sized firms and went out through the back door to pay banks. No wonder uh, loan losses are few and far between. Uh, the point here is not to say that you know, pain is necessarily a good thing, but it is to say that we had somewhat miraculously a, 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 a um, um, uh, situation where the amount of spending tended to buffer in, in an unprecedented way. And, and of course, this uh, the pent-up savings, given that people couldn't spend, ramped up demand, and today we see the consequences in snarled supply chains. So is the Fed right at this point? Is inflation transitory, or uh, as the Fed now says, expected to be transitory? Um, Perhaps, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's hard to predict uh, the future, uh, but uh, much suggests this time could be different. Uh, clearly, the duration of this period of highflation could affect expectations. Uh, we are already seeing uh, transportation costs uh, sort of going up, uh, shortage of ships, uh, of ports, of warehouses, of truckers and trucks. And of course, given these shortages, uh, commensurate overordering as, as, as firms try and uh, bolster their inventories. Uh, we've seen uh, energy prices go up, commodity prices go up, and of course, housing has been on a tear across uh, the industrial world, and now uh, house prices are feeding into inflation in a, in a somewhat predictable way. Uh, but perhaps more Im most important, labor markets are, are tight. And uh, partly this is, uh, um, you know, in some sense, because of the protection from global competition I, I, I talked about. But most important, um, it, it does seem at this point, given the pandemic, uh, given the public support uh, uh, to, um, you know, higher wages at, at the low, low end, um, labor has a little more pricing power than in the past. Um, now, in the past, corporations used to absorb some of the higher costs into their margins, uh, but certainly at this point, perhaps uh, because of temporary effects, because of uh, the snarled uh, sort of supply chains across the world, they too seem to have pricing power and passing on uh, the higher input costs into inflations. More generally, uh, there was a belief that labor markets were temporarily disrupted because of the effects of the pandemic, um, um, you know, as uh, some of the uh, higher unemployment insurance benefits came off as the pandemic wore down and people were more prepared to uh, walk into high contact service jobs. And as women could leave the home, uh, sending their kids off to school, uh, that would all uh, deal with some of the, um, uh, the snafus in the labor market. But I think there's more uh, that's at work. Certainly some of what's going on is the sectoral distribution of work is different today than pre-pandemic. There's far more employment in manufacturing, far less employment in high contact services, far more employment in Peoria, uh, far less employment in New York City. New York City unemployment is just still 10%, uh, suggesting uh, many of the high contact services haven't come back. What you really need to do is move the waiter in New York to become a welder in Peoria that is difficult at the best of times, will take time to deal with the spatial and sectoral dislocations in the labor market. But there's also something else that's going on, which is hard to point, pin down, which is uh, people are reassessing their lifestyles. Maybe this is temporary, but a lot of people are saying, do I really want to work in those high contact service jobs, which are precarious, which don't have uh, significant benefits? Or do I want to look for something better, something different? And, and uh, so there's a lot of uh, search going on. As you know, quit rates are at a, at a, uh, at a high, uh, even though, uh, and, and there are plenty of jobs available, uh, over 10 million uh, vacancies. So it, it is a time when labor markets are disrupted, and it is uh, perhaps optimistic once again to believe they will go back. Um, and, um, you know, there is a, a lot of public support 
uh, for uh, workers at this point, including support for strikes, which are uh, you know rising at this point. Uh, more broadly, uh, I think it is somewhat wishful thinking to think that labor costs will abate quickly uh, without significant change in economic activity. But perhaps the most worrisome point at this point is what I would call various forms of monetary dominance or traps. Uh, let's start first with the uh, with the obvious one, fiscal dominance. Um, QE started up with absolutely no intent, uh, certainly in the United States, to fund large government deficits. But as the pandemic occurred, uh, QE was dangerously close to direct government funding. Uh, and certainly there are forms of QE, uh, the uh, yield curve control practiced by Japan and by Australia till it abandoned it recently, which essentially allow government debt issuance to determine the size of the central bank balance sheet. Uh, that uh, to me sounds a lot like fiscal dominance. Uh, and of course, QE uh, as practiced everywhere um, expands the uh, um, central bank's balance sheet, perhaps buying uh, assets uh, of the government, but in the process shortens the duration of the combined government uh, central bank balance sheet, which then uh, suggests that the central bank may have to be more cautious in raising rates uh, simply because it shows up much more quickly in uh, in the costs uh, in 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 higher fiscal deficits. This is something that uh, a number of people, including the BIS, have been pointing to for some time. So fiscal dominance is a concern, especially as the levels of spending have skyrocketed. But there's also equally problematic financial dominance uh, when you have assets prices supported by abundant liquidity and low rates, the central bank has to be wary of upsetting financial markets, fearing a collapse in sentiment and adverse, and adverse wealth effects. Um, this is something which, you know, a number of academics are now saying is a, is a good thing. Uh, you know, you, uh, you place constraints on monetary policy, commit to being low for forever. But of course, this has adverse effects in an inflationary environment. Um, now, there seems to be a belief not just that the Fed will move later than warranted, given its fears about upsetting the financial markets, but indeed there will be a Fed put attached uh, to it when it moves. Uh, and, and of course, every, um, you know, no uh, Fed chairman wants uh, to be associated uh, with a Fed put, uh, but it's been incredibly hard for them to get away uh, from, uh, you know, the sense in markets that the Fed has uh, their back. Now, policy responses uh, are, of course, keep the party going and risk a bigger problem later. Um, you know, you could try to gently end the party, but no one leaves because they trust you to continue being the good host going forward. Or you could end the party abruptly and be blamed if the adjustment is severe. Clearly, none of these are uh, really good options. All of them are bad. And, uh, you know, the uh, central bank, uh, including the Fed, have to now navigate in this in this in this environment today the ecb or yesterday the ecb said it it feared similar problems in uh, in the euro area um a third problem is framework dominance uh having sought flexibility to wait till inflation sustainably meets the target uh having sought uh, you know um, um the flexibility to focus on the average rather than uh the immediate level can the, uh, the Fed afford not to use this flexibility? In other words, uh, given that what used to be considered normal monetary policy in the past, which is react to high potentially sustained inflation on early signs, um, you know, uh, when central bankers saw inflation, regardless of how it was caused, uh, they'd get in front of microphones, square their, their shoulders and say, we hate inflation, we'll do something about it quickly. You don't see any central bankers saying that now. In fact, they're making excuses for inflation. This is transitory. Don't worry, uh, it will go away. Um, so the behavior of the past is now seen as aggressive, uh, partly because the frameworks are different and don't, don't allow for that kind of aggression, at least not in the way it used to be expressed. 
And so a real question is, have we unintentionally changed frameworks just as, or, or sorry, I should say intentionally changed frameworks, but just as the regime changed back from a structurally disinflationary regime to a structurally normal or even inflationary regime, uh, do we have the wrong framework for the wrong uh, regime? And of course, that leads to the last uh, uh, kind of dominance I want to talk about, political dominance. Uh, when the fiscal authority has spent trillions and immense political capital to create the best economic recovery money can buy, it would be a really brave central bank that would risk tanking the recovery uh, through early uh, um, sort of uh, policy uh, moves. Now, I, I, I'm not saying that uh, the uh, chairman uh, or president of the central bank has individual concerns about, you know, uh, what will this do to my job or to my reappointment, but I'm talking about them having institutional concerns. Uh, what is the political position of the Fed if, in fact, it is accused of, uh, of precipitating uh, a recession? Uh, that certainly is uh, is something that I, if I were running this, uh, an institution at this point, would would worry about. That that makes it much harder for you to uh, undertake actions uh, in the future. It does compromise you. So again, it's it's a hard decision. Either uh, be politically dominated now or be politically dominated in the future. Uh, and, and finally, uh, there is the uh, prisoner's dilemma problem that uh, all the central banks have because of what each one has done, which is the first to move risks, adverse exchange rate movements, as well as political and financial market pushback. And that to my mind uh, is also on their minds. Uh, uh, perhaps uh, we will understand better why the Bank of England sig signaled that it was going to move and then backed off over time. But at the back of its mind, maybe these various forms of external dominance. Now, it may well be, and I don't want to take this off the table, that central banks are right and inflation dies down after a while. It may also be that the medium-term disinflationary forces from China and scarred emerging markets might also suppress inflation. But if, in fact, inflation is more durable, central banks are much more constrained than in the past in being able to deal with it. And this is why I fear that when we say, uh, oh, we don't know how to deal with low inflation, but we do know how to deal with higher than normal inflation, we may well know how to deal with it, but the circumstances have changed in such a way that it may be harder for central banks to in fact deal with it. And that to my mind reflects a certain amount of complacency that uh, we yeah. well without. Um, let me uh, turn next uh, to what happens if the Fed ignores some of these constraints and acts early and forcefully. Uh, it certainly will go against market expectations, but I want to focus on financial stability uh, risks that might emerge. Uh, again, not to say that the Fed shouldn't do this, only that we have come to a situation uh, where financial dominance is certainly a worry. So what would be the concerns from a financial stability perspective with, uh, with sharp movements in interest rates? Uh, I want to talk about five. Uh, first is the untested financial innovation that has taken place over the last few years. Second, of course, is the high level of asset prices. The third is the leveraging uh, corporate, sovereign, and in markets, uh, and in some countries in households. Uh, that has taken place uh, over the years, but especially uh, in recent years and post -pand and during the pandemic. A fourth is liquidity dependence, how dependent the markets are on liquidity from the central bank. And finally, fiscal fragility, which I've already talked about. Uh, let's start with first with in innovations. We have many innovations of substantial size that have not been through a serious downturn or experienced normal monetary policy regimes. Uh, stable coins are an example. Uh, buy now, pay later in the financial sector uh, is another. Um, we have seen that uh, you know, some of these innovations don't fully account for human behavior. Uh, Willow backed off uh, from uh, what is known as iBuyer, where uh, they used to take uh, houses uh, essentially, you know, almost, uh, I, I should say, sight unseen, uh, based on pricing formulas. 
and have found that uh, when they do that, uh, they tend to get uh, a lower quality of purchases because humans, of course, when you see a price there, you shop around, find the best price elsewhere. And then uh, if you don't get a price higher than uh, what is on offer, sell to the offerer, uh, that's called adverse selection. Um, uh, it seems um, you know, from a paper by Buchak and out at, at all that perhaps this wasn't uh, fully uh, taken into account and Willow made a lot of losses and then uh, and then backed out. I should say Zillow rather than Willow. Zillow made a lot of losses and backed off. Um, but but I, I would also say that uh, some of these innovations allow for new vehicles for rapid uh, uh, flows and possible contagion to take place. Uh, in a number of countries, we are seeing significant cross-border crypto flows. And you can imagine that uh, crypto flows would be a far more uh, far more rapid way of exiting a country if, in fact, uh, there's financial market apprehension. So there are, uh, you know, innovative ways we can uh, we can increase flows, and that may not, uh, you know, help financial stability. The bottom line is we don't really know what will happen when the tide flows out because the tide uh, has been in for uh, over a decade now in terms of easy policy and uh, and uh, nothing really has been uh, tested tested even the pandemic stress test uh, didn't really develop because the fed came in um we also have a high level of asset prices uh, many financial assets are essentially long dated zero coupon bonds being priced on hope and change discounted at very low rates so, um, you know, exit from easy policy may see an abrupt move in long rates uh, and a concomitant effect on asset prices, a sharp appreciation in exchange rates, and of course, a potential collapse in sentiment and adverse, adverse wealth effects. Uh, the key to propagating uh, this, of course, is leverage. Uh, in 2000, we did not have leverage. Uh, it was a short-lived recession, 2007, 2008, we had a lot of leverage. Uh, and asset price changes had uh, significant effects. And this is where one has to worry because all manner of leverage, implicit and explicit, public, private, and market leverage has gone up. Archegos was an example of a new form of leverage, which we didn't quite understand, levering up to take large bets on specific stocks, and it went belly up fairly quickly. What was worrisome is so many uh, sophisticated banks had lent to Archegos. Now, um, some of this leverage is also dangerous because its support is really based on high asset prices. And when these fall, former serviceable levels of debt become excessive. Uh, in a paper with Douglas Diamond uh, and Yan Zihe, uh, we, we explain why buoyant asset prices tends to boost leverage uh, in the process, reducing due diligence and governance. I mean, you're familiar with this from the global financial crisis, ninja mortgage loans. Uh, why did people make them? Well, why bother investigating credit quality if you can repossess the home and sell it and home prices are uh, bounding up uh, every, every month? You, in fact, may be better off repossessing than waiting for repayment. Uh, but of course, uh, because you haven't done the investigation, because the borrower themselves have no reason to keep up their ability to borrow uh, going forward, uh, the debt contracted becomes unserviceable when liquidity dries up and asset prices plunge. Uh, this is as true of households as it is of the corporate sector. Uh, you worry about private equity bidding more and more for firms, but that has a logic of its own. Uh, the uh, fact that uh, private equity has immense uh, uh, sort of funds and can bid, in fact, makes the leverage sustainable. Uh, uh, but but when uh, the merry-go-round stops, uh, essentially the high levels of debt uh, become unenforceable, unsupportable, and that leads to a right holy mess. Uh, so uh, this connection between leverage and asset prices is something to worry about because there may not be uh, much to support the existing leverage if in fact asset prices fall significantly, if liquidity falls significantly. And let me turn to liquidity then. There seems to be plenty of liquidity around as central banks have expanded their balance sheets uh, funded by extremely liquid uh, reserves. Um, 
you know, Fed reserves are the most liquid asset in the planet. Uh, they're many times what they were before the financial crisis. And it seems as if given the quantity of reserves that have been created, um, you know, there should be no liquidity problem in financial markets. But we forget that commercial banks fund their holdings of reserves with demandable, typically wholesale deposits. This is an offsetting claim on liquidity and comes to uh, essentially shows up in tough times when wholesale deposits, uh, you know, have, uh, uh, you know, a lot more anxiety and can tend to run at the first sign of trouble. Matters are often considerably worse because with the plentiful uh, liquidity sitting on their uh, on their balance sheets, banks issue plenty of contingent promises of liquidity. Uh, one uh, classic example of this is writing line of credits uh, against the liquidity uh, because, uh, you know, th that's easy to do. And of course, the problem comes when the line of credits gets drawn on in the worst of times for the banks. Uh, similarly, regulators want a portion of reserves set aside for liquidity regulation. So the plentiful liquidity sitting on your balance sheet may not be available. And of course, regulators also want more capital set aside if the reserves are lent. But perhaps most important, when times term, uh, turn adverse, banks themselves hold liquidity uh, for fear of uh, any unanticipated claims. The net effect, as Viral Nacharya and I argue in a recent paper, is liquidity dependence. As you create more liquidity, uh, the demand for liquidity rises to meet and perhaps even exceed supply, causing yet more demands for liquidity. So the liquidity episodes that we saw in September 2019 and March 2020, despite reserves outstanding being many multiples of what we saw before the global financial crisis, suggest, in fact, uh, something like this might well be happening, which then means that if central banks, uh, you know, believe they can expand their balance sheets indefinitely to meet the demand for reserves, it is also true the demand for reserves will keep growing up. And the question is, is there any, any end point to this? Is there any concern? Why not just create the money if people want it? No problem. I would argue, and that's the last part I make about risks, steady balance sheet expansion creates fiscal risks. Um, clearly, when the central bank buys long-term government paper, it effectively shortens the duration of debt of the consolidated balance sheet. And, um, you know, basically reserves have infinite maturity. They can't, uh, you know, uh, you don't have to repay them. But commercial banks uh, have to hold them. That's, that's the beauty of reserves. But they have zero, zero duration since they reprice overnight. Ricardo Rice has written extensively about this. And, and this means when interest rates move up, the central bank will soon have to pay higher rates. And these are passed through lower central bank dividends into the government fiscal deficit. Now, should we worry about it? I think we should, because take the UK, average debt maturity 15 years, median debt maturity, which is more relevant because a lot of console bonds and long-term bonds, Median debt maturity is more relevant for when you have to roll over the debt. That's 11 years. But when you account for QE and then compute the median maturity, it is only four years. Um, and, and the UK Office of Budget Responsibility notes that a one percentage point increase in interest rates would boost uh, the UK government's debt interest payments by about 0.8% of GDP which you know, over a, a, a four-year period is about two-thirds of the fiscal tightening proposed over the same period. And this is just 100 basis points. If you have to go much higher, the effects are proportionately higher. And remember, the US starts with average maturity of debt of only 65 months, and then do the median, and then take out what the central bank owns. This quickly becomes a situation where higher interest rates could lead quickly to higher debt service, and higher fiscal deficits. So um, in sum, we have considerable risks to inflation if the central bank waits too long. We have risk to financial stability if it tightens too abruptly. Dominance of different kinds. Uh, does waiting diffuse one risk while exacerbating another, or does it compound both risks? In other words, if you wait too long and have to move fast to head off inflation, do you bring about what you feared? Clearly, there are no easy answers. You have to muddle through who said it was easy being a central banker. Let me end by bringing all this back to populism. 
populism implies distrust in elite institutions, their objectives, and their operational decisions. And in this rendering, tough choices made by a central bank are an elite conspiracy intended by the elite to feather their nest while imposing pain on the masses. So there are really two ways of uh, looking at central bank actions in the last few years, given this kind of a growing public belief uh, about what they do. Uh, one could be read as their actions in recent years are a response to a stubbornly disinflationary environment where they're doing their best to fulfill their mandate. But there is perhaps a different diagnosis. Uh, perhaps central banks are reacting implicitly, maybe not explicitly, but implicitly to rising populism and distrust in them. Uh, with they're, they're reacting with policies that strive for popular legitimacy by being as painless as possible. Um, is the resemblance between many of the unconventional monetary policies and long abandoned interventionist policies in many populist emerging markets simply a coincidence? Or has the environment changed in industrial countries to resemble the environment in emerging markets? I, I mean the political environment here. More broadly, are institutions entirely independent of the social political environment? Is central banks independence essentially baked in stone? Or are they actually creatures of that social political environment? And we're seeing that play out. I firmly believe, and I've in, in my writing, that it's the latter institutions aren't independent of the environment. Let me end with questions that need answers, which I'm sure people in this, uh, in this conference will, will offer. Uh, one, does the central bank's need for popular legitimacy cause it to promise too much? Is it too averse to inflicting pain, both in its monetary and supervisory decisions? In the process, is it creating the possibility of broader and greater pain? Second, should central banks accept there are limitations to their ability to raise inflation from low levels? Should they explain the limitations of their toolbox to the public, even at the risk of undermining faith in and credibility of central banks? Third, how much should central banks engage in, in large-scale asset purchases or credit easing? Are any of these interventions counterproductive in the long run? Uh, should, uh, fourth, should central banks ensure they do not strengthen the market put every time they intervene, given that they seem powerless to regulate markets to prevent the need for the put from recurring, should their powers of intervention be more constrained after every intervention they undertake in the markets at the time the situation normalizes? In other words, should we constrain them more in good times so that uh, the market doesn't believe they will act in bad times? Constraining is always in a sense, a difficult decision because it limits uh, flexibility. But as we know, there are values to commitment. And perhaps the most important question for this conference is, are central banks the victims of populism or the perpetrators of populism? Thank you. Thank you very much, Raghu. That was a, a very uh, excellent talk. And uh, the questions you raised at the end are, are critical. I'd like to begin with a, a question. I think you may have answered this already, but maybe we could go into a little bit more detail. And that is, what are the main fault lines you see in today's global financial system? And how concerned are you about, quote, lower for longer leading to financial instability when rates rise? <laughs> well, uh, I, I am worried. Uh, I, um, you know, it's, it's not, uh, as, as as I said, just the um, uh, the level of asset prices, uh, it's the accompanying leverage. Uh, I mean, uh, one example: look at the private equity world. Uh, these entities are flush with cash, but the leverage levels in some of the transactions have been going up for some time. Uh, clearly, uh, they're affordable at uh, at the old. Uh, debt service rates, but they do suggest high asset prices. And of course, uh, you know, um, uh, that uh, when, when uh, that doesn't hold up uh, and the leverage becomes harder to service, how do we actually fix all this? Uh, that's just one example. Uh, I mean, um, you know, there's so many assets uh, which are, as I said, zero coupon bonds 
priced, uh, take, take cryptos. I mean, uh, some of them are being used in payments. Some of them are being used in payments uh, off the chain. That I found that very interesting. Uh, a lot of blockchain transactions being uh, taking place off the chain. But the the question is, uh, you know, um, what is the ultimate value? I, I can see a lot of innovation, but no killer apps till now. Uh, they will come, but do we really need six thousand cryptos? And uh, will all of them have value going forward? Clearly, there will be some mess in the markets when prices adjust. Uh, how will that happen? Who's left holding the bag? Uh, we don't. We don't know. So lots of scope for disruption as rates rise. Um, even the rates themselves are a puzzle to me. With this level of economic activity, ten-year real rates are negative one plus change. I mean, I you know what's going on? Uh, and to me, there are either uh, it is reflects the level of central bank intervention, which I don't believe is the entire story. It also reflects uh, you know asset purchasers who are uh, uh, sort of taking decisions which may be harmful in the medium term. Not everybody. Uh, is acting, um, you know, um, I, th I think there are agency compulsions, et cetera, which are forcing action at this point uh, to invest in some of this. Okay, we have a question from Michael on Slido. He asks, quote, what is the mechanism by which excessive increases to the money supply produced general price inflation in the economy? Are these processes empirically demonstrable? Oh, uh, I mean, uh, uh, there. Um, I, I think it depends to some extent on uh, on where you are in the inflation cycle, right? Um, what we've had experience of in this period of really low inflation uh, with zero interest rates is, uh, for the most part, uh, in the pre-pandemic era you could expand your balance sheet willy-nilly as a central bank in, in an industrial country. And uh, um, basically um, the uh, buyers, uh, the, the holders of reserves were pretty happy to just sit and wait on it. Um, I think with, uh, with the payment of interest on excess reserves, you can still keep them quiescent by paying in ex interest on those excess reserves. The, Problem comes when you get into a more inflationary environment and the costs uh, of the interest you pay starts biting, uh, as well as uh, those holding non-interest bearing money uh, essentially find that uh, it's no longer beneficial to stay passive. And, and that's when you start getting, uh, seeing some of the effects uh, of, uh, of uh, excess money uh, sort of making its way into credit into production decisions and of course into inflation. Okay, a user on Slido asks, quote, why have populist calls focused so much on central banks in recent years? You know, uh, the central banks are your arch typical uh, elite institution, right? Unelected, uh, appointed rather than elected. Uh, these are Central bankers are people with PhDs uh, for the most part, not all, of course, um, but who talk an arcane language, right? R star. Who, who knows what R star means outside the central banking community, right? And uh, in, in fact, you know, uh, I would bet that a significant part of the population doesn't really see uh, why we shouldn't print more money, right? Uh, what's the cost of printing money? I mean, it's a question I had as a child and I'm still not sure I know the, the, the full answer as you saw, just saw in my response to the previous question. But, but the reality is these are issues that, uh, that are somewhat arcane and uh, central bankers talk about it in, uh, in, in meetings which are often hidden from the public. They meet often in Basel, that, uh, that uh, sort of location of, uh, of immense conspiracy. Uh, and, and, and so it's very easy to demonize them. Here are guys who uh, respond to a higher calling, uh, which is not ours. And uh, they're elitist, uh, you know, who cares about inflation except them? 
it's only when it starts biting that you see that it, it is problematic for the larger public. Uh, and, and central banks can't go out proselytizing. I think, I think central banks have recognized the need to do this. There's more community outreach now uh, by the Bank of England, by the uh, Federal Reserve. But uh, you don't want to do too much of it either because you don't want to compete with a politician for space in the public mind. Uh, that is a recipe for, uh, for, for um, you know, intervention from the politician. So they're in a little bit of a bind. Uh, uh, nobody fully understands what they do. Their motives are suspect. They're thought of as being from a higher order uh, that is not the public. Uh, and, yet, uh, and yet they have to do something which uh, touches everyone uh, every day. Uh, that's a difficult job. So I, I, I did it once. Uh, I, I will complain about the set of circumstances that we are in. But I won't for a moment say it is easy or, and this is the second aspect, that they don't have the best interests of people at heart. I don't want to impugn their motives. Uh, I think the motives are fully laudable. These are people who work at you know, a fraction of what they would get if they work for the private sector in the public interest. The problem, of course, is these choices are difficult. Raghu, as a <clears throat> former central banker yourself, you were known in India as a rock star, so maybe you don't fit into that mold. But anyway, uh, Nikal, who is a colleague of mine at Cato, asks, quote, what are the most significant challenges facing central banks in emerging markets in the post-COVID global economy, particularly with respect to the establishment of credible targets and independence? Right. I, I mean, um... What a number of central banks in emerging markets did uh, in the um, you know, post, uh, uh, not so much global financial crisis, but East Asian crisis world was to move towards uh, more, um, you know, look more like the West, uh, stop buying government debt, um, stopped, um, uh, you know, put in place inflation targets. Uh, trying to build in more independence. Uh, again, as I argued in the stock, no central bank is truly independent. It's, it's, it's dominated by circumstances. But the circumstances were quite, uh, uh, quite good in the sense that uh, commodity prices were rising, um, uh, economic growth was strong, and, and therefore it was possible to maintain this kind of, uh, to put in place this kind of framework. And, uh, and, oh, okay. And, um, I'd say that you're watching. As Ken Rogoff uh, uh, points out, almost every central bank across the world managed to bring inflation down in, 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 in this wonderful post-1990s uh, uh, period. However, uh, I think circumstances have changed in a number of emerging markets. The pandemic has not been kind to them. Uh, not only are uh, households often deeply scarred by the effects of the pandemic, they haven't had the kind of support that uh, households in industrial countries have had. And uh, small and medium firms have, have created in many of these countries, the informal economy has tottered. Uh, net effect, yes, there are spots which are doing well, the upper middle class, the, the big firms. <clears throat> But, uh, but across, there is a lot of deep pain within these countries, lots of inequality. And that's the recipe for the populist policies that you talked about. Central banks are under a lot of pressure because fiscal deficits, even at the constrained level, are starting to blow out. You see the discussion in Brazil before the elections next year is all about breaking the fiscal constraints that they had in the past. Uh, Chile just avoided dipping into its pensions for the fourth, fourth time. Uh, across the emerging world, there is pressure on fiscal expansion uh, in no, no small part by pointing to the industrial world and saying they did it. Why can't we do it? The problem, of course, is the uh, ability to expand is much more uh, uh, sort of limited in, in the uh, emerging markets. And so central banks are under huge pressure in those countries. They have to raise rates to keep inflation within control, uh, but the FISC is not cooperating. Uh, it's, uh, it's, it's actually, um, uh, we have the traditional EM problem that we had in the past. And that is why uh, for many of these countries, the signal really is the exchange rate. Uh, Brazil, the exchange rate has depreciated significantly 
again bringing in imported inflation in, in into Brazil, making the central banker's choice even harder. Uh, bottom line, I think, uh, uh, you know, emerging market central banks don't get an easy pass now. They have much less credibility to start off with. They have a significant fiscal authority to deal with, probably less independence than indus in industrial countries. And yet they have to do all the things that they have to do, manage to keep the economy afloat. Uh, the job is getting tougher. Okay, we have a, a very good question from Jessica on Slido. She asks, quote, how does allowing inflation exceed the inflation target for an unspecified period anchor inflation expectations better than having a specific inflation target? Uh -huh. I think this is this has to do with uh, with the situation central banks were in, in the sense that they couldn't push up inflation. Uh, and and you know Paul Krugman once said, you know the point is not just about today; it's about tomorrow. If tomorrow, at the first sign of inflation, you act to kill it, uh, then you know as people roll back to today, they tend to believe that uh, inflation will stay low uh, for a long, long time, and and so as a result, you tend to be stuck in this low inflation trap. I mean, he was talking more about a deflationary trap, uh, but perhaps one could expand his story to an in, uh, a low inflation trap. And in this that kind of environment, what he said was, uh, I mean, you have to say when you see inflation, you won't react immediately. You let it run a little hot. And then, you know, as the, you, you, you sort of discount back to today, it allows for the possibility of a little more inflation today. Uh, that's the sense in which, um, you know, uh, central banks have tried to promise we won't react at the first sign of inflation. And they've used the word sustainable at our target levels also quite a bit, which means that, you know, just because it hits two doesn't mean I'm going to react. I want to know that it's going to stay at two. I think the uh, ECB has some language like this. And, and so what this does is it tries to convince the public that I won't react at the first sign of inflation hitting or exceeding my target. I'll be a little more relaxed. That's the best uh, sort of I can say about it. Uh, it's, the, it's really a policy for a low inflation world. It's not necessarily the right policy for a high inflation world where we have over time learned that a specific inflation target helps in that world. I think we have time for one more question. And Mary asks on Slido, quote, does the deleveraging of large Chinese property developers pose a real threat to commodity prices and as a result, emerging markets that depend on strong commodity markets? Well, I, I, I did uh, hint at this in my talk that, uh, that perhaps there could be disinflationary pressures emerging from China. And, and certainly what they're doing in the property market is yet another unprecedented thing in the sense that they're uh, uh, firmly trying to bring uh, the rampaging property prices uh, under control, uh, trying to reduce the level of speculation. Uh, Xi Jinping is reported to have said, houses are for living, not for speculation. And uh, basically uh, trying to clean up the sector to make it much less leveraged much less dependent on, on significant property price growth so as to make it more affordable for the common person. Uh, you know, prices in the big cities are 25, 30 times average incomes, which, uh, which basically make them unaffordable for most, most uh, almost everyone. So this is what they're trying to do, but in the process, they have to essentially let the air leak slowly out of property prices. Very hard to manage that in a way that is uh, that doesn't, you know, create uh, a, a more rapid uh, sort of uh, fall in prices. And property prices are central to, you know, household wealth. They that is their most important asset. Central to how local governments finance themselves. They sell land in order to finance themselves. And of course, are the backing for many loans that the uh, smaller banks as well as the shadow financial system has lent. So yes, uh, this is one of those uh, moves that, uh, that could have knock-on effects. And everybody says, well, don't worry about the Chinese. They can always reverse it. Well, the way they've reversed things in the past is by pressing the construction button and saying, go forth and construct. 
that button is precisely what they're trying to sort of avoid this time to try and clean up. And therefore, it's not clear to me that that button will be available going forward. So it's it's it bears watching. That may be the source of disinflationary pressures over the medium term. And, and that may be what uh, essentially helps the central banks uh, in industrial countries stay the course. Let me stop there. Well, thank you very much for a very excellent talk uh, that generates lots of questions that uh, still need to be answered. And uh, I wish you a happy Thanksgiving and thanks for taking the time to be with us today. Thank you.